Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, reading beginning in the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. I'm intrigued by titles given to God in the scripture. He is called in Acts 7 verse 2, the God of glory. He's called in Romans 15, 13, the God of hope. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he is referred to as the God of love and peace. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, he's called the God of peace. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he's called the God of all grace. And then Revelation eleven thirteen, he's called the God of heaven. The God of hope, the God of glory, the God of peace, the God of love, the God of heaven. But I love the title in the third verse of our reading this morning, the God of all comfort. The words comfort and consolation are key words in the epistle known as 2 Corinthians. They appear 20 times in this letter, and 10 of those times were in the verses that I read for you just now. Comfort, consolation, the words mean the very same things, to console, to comfort. And the primary theme of this epistle is God's comfort and consolation to his people. And it's certainly the dominant note that is struck in these opening verses that we're looking at today. Second Corinthians is the epistle of encouragement, the letter of comfort, as Paul sets out in this letter to encourage the church. It shows us his pastoral heart for the Lord's people. May I suggest this morning that encouragement and comfort is vital in a world of pain and difficulty such as we're living in today. In a world of sickness and loss and disappointment, how wonderful it is to know that our God is a God who comforts those that are cast down a God of consolation, a God who encourages. I wonder today if you feel any need for encouragement in your life. 
Celeste Holm said people live by encouragement and they die without it, slowly, sadly, and angrily. And it's true, my friends, that every one of us appreciates a word of encouragement. We feel the need to be spurred forward, the need to be consoled, the need to be supported and helped, and God invests himself in fulfilling that need because he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, I think it's important as we look at this title for God this morning to get the background of 2 Corinthians in order to appreciate Paul's tender words in this letter and particularly in this passage. It's important to understand the setting of this epistle. What was the occasion for writing 2 Corinthians? Well, there were basically three reasons Paul wrote it. First of all, his own inner turmoil. Usually when we think of the Apostle Paul, we think of someone who was 90% backbone and 10% gristle. But I suggest for consideration that uh, Paul had a heart. He was human. He was a man of like passions such as we are. In fact, all of these Bible heroes were just flesh and blood people like us, having the same troubles and trials and challenges and difficulties that we do. And the Apostle Paul was no exception. And like you or like me, Paul struggled with inward dispeace and disquietness from time to time. He had his inward turmoil. Have you ever been tied in knots on the inside? You ever felt anxiety, discouragement, sadness, grief, depression, or the struggle just to keep going and to keep hoping? You see, Paul's inward turmoil was tied in many respects to this church at Corinth because he had worked so hard to get the church started and now they have become such a problem church in his apostolic ministry, but yet he loves them so dearly. His heart is invested in this church. You remember the church at Corinth was established by God through Paul. The record of it is in the 18th chapter of Acts. Paul was blessed by God to constitute the church at Corinth. And by the way, if you read that 18th chapter of Acts, that was no easy task. You remember Paul was all alone in Corinth and he was financially in need and so he started making tents. He didn't have a place to live, but two people named Aquila and Priscilla took him in. This husband-wife team that had come lately from Rome, you can read all about this in Acts chapter 18. And because he was of the same craft with them, he abode with them. So they let him stay in their home, for by their occupation they were all tent makers. And Paul began to reason in the synagogue every Sabbath. This was his customary habit. On the Sabbath, he would go to the Jewish synagogue, and there was an opportunity given for anyone present to speak if they had a word of exhortation. So Paul took the opportunity at these sabbatical meetings to uh, preach the gospel. And as he reasoned with the Jews every Sabbath, he began to receive opposition from them. They blasphemed. And Paul finally said, I won't be back anymore. And he went to the house next door. A man lived there whose name was Justice. And Paul began to have meetings there. But at the same time, Crispus, who was the superintendent, the chief ruler of the synagogue, was converted. So it was like the pastor of the local church became 
one of Paul's followers became a Christian. That was quite a disconcerting set of events for the Jews. But Paul's success in Corinth was small and slow, and he became quite discouraged. Now again, he's alone, which is unusual, because he usually has Timothy or Silas with him, but he's all alone in Corinth. He's financially in need, and he's having to support himself. And he's experiencing significant opposition here. And he begins to wonder if maybe he needs to go somewhere else, but the Lord appears to him that night in a vision. Acts chapter 18, verse 9 says, The Lord spake to Paul and said, Be not afraid, but speak. Notice how God comes to him to comfort and to support him. Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. I love that. Even before Paul preached to them, God already had a people there. And you know, that's the pattern that God uses when he works. He always has a people prepared to receive the gospel. It's God's grace that makes a child of God. And when a person has been awakened to spiritual life, now they're capable of receiving the gospel. God already had a people that he had prepared, ready for Paul to preach. I have much people in this city. By the way, Corinth was a cosmopolitan city in the ancient world, and it was a very immoral place. In fact, to call somebody a Corinthian was to seriously insult them. It had a reputation for gross idolatry and immorality. In fact, there were a thousand priestess prostitutes from the local idolatrous temple that Applied their trade in Corinth. It was a place where merchants came and went. I mean, there was a steady flow of visitors and tourists and travelers through the city, and all kinds of decadence took place there. But to know that God had a people in such a wicked city, my friends, is a testimony to the sovereign grace of God. And I believe God has many people in Myrtle Beach, or in Wilmington, or in Shalote, or Little River. Or Calabash, I believe God has much people, my friends, who need the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, an understanding of his grace, and that gives me incentive to keep preaching. Be not afraid, but speak, for I have many people in this city. So Paul continues there a year and six months. Now that's a long time for Paul to stay in any one place. Eighteen months, a year and a half. He stayed in Corinth teaching the word of God among them, and a church was established. So Paul was used by God to establish this church, but it was no easy task, and he stayed there 18 months. Then he went to Ephesus, as you'll read in the next chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, which was about 450 miles away across the lion's share of the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul travels from Corinth to Ephesus a long ways off, and he's there for the next three years. And at some point during his stay at Ephesus, Paul received a letter from the church at Corinth. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the first verse when he says, Concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. So they wrote a letter to Paul with questions. They had a number of questions and Paul is using 1 Corinthians to answer those questions. Not only has he received a letter from the church at Corinth, he also encounters, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, some members from that church known as the house of Chloe, probably a husband and wife, 
Maybe some children were traveling with them. I don't know how they came in contact with Paul, but he says in 1 Corinthians 1.11, it hath been declared unto me by them that are of the house of Chloe that there are contentions among you. So some members of that church are evidently traveling and they've encountered Paul and reported to him that not only does the church have a number of questions, but it has several problems. And therefore he writes 1 Corinthians, a very hard-hitting confrontational letter to answer their questions and to address their problems. And if you look at that first epistle, you'll note that there are at least 11 major errors in the church at Corinth that Paul addresses as an apostle to that church. Now as we come to 2 Corinthians, it's been approximately one year since he wrote 1 Corinthians. And you know, 450 miles away, he's in Ephesus. Communication was not immediate like it is now. You know, we're living in a very unique time in history when you can communicate with someone across a country and across the world in just a matter of seconds. I get WhatsApp messages from some of our brethren in Africa on a frequent basis, and they'll send the message, and I get it right then. I can respond right then. News can be passed quickly today, but in that day, the only method they had of communication was either by letter or by personal communication. The only way they had was, especially when they were that far away, was to wait a long time. And Paul, during this year, between the time he sent the confrontational letter of 1 Corinthians and now, he's very anxious to know how his letter was received. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in the first verse. I determined this with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. That indicates that when he wrote 1 Corinthians, his heart was heavy. He was worried. He was concerned about that church. They were a fledgling new congregation that he had just established, only been around a couple of two or three years, and Paul has answered some of their questions. He's addressed some of their problems. He's hit them hard in 1 Corinthians, and now he said, I determined I wouldn't follow up on that letter. I wouldn't come to you again in heaviness. Notice verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears. Now what was his mindset when he wrote 1 Corinthians? Well, much affliction and anguish of heart. He says, I wrote that letter with many tears. Not that you should be grieved. My motive was not to hurt you but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. You know, the book of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Notice now in verse number 9, for to this end also did I write. He's explaining his motives in writing that hard-hitting letter of 1 Corinthians. For to this end did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. And then, verses 12 and 13, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, he said, I could tell God was blessing me, yet, he said, I had no rest in my spirit. Inward turmoil. Because I found not Titus my brother. I was waiting for Titus to come back with a report of how you had responded to my first epistle. But taking leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Indeed, my friends, Paul was anxious to know how they had responded to 1 Corinthians. If you 
Turn forward to the seventh chapter now, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Listen to verse 5. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. And we just left him in chapter 2 saying, I determined to go into Macedonia. Now he explains what happened then. He had no rest in his spirit. Our flesh had no rest. He said, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't think. He said, my heart was in a turmoil, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings and within were fears. You ever been there? The circumstances of your life were complicated and on the inside you were fighting a battle in your own heart without were fightings within were fears watch this nevertheless god that comforteth those there's that word comfort god that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of titus he says finally he arrived finally our paths crossed i've been waiting to hear now he couldn't get a text message from them he couldn't receive a letter in the mail he couldn't get an email or a phone call. He had to rely on meeting up with somebody who had been there, Titus. And he says, when Titus came, God comforted me by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, watch this, but by the consolation, there's the word, wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire your mourning, your fervent mind toward me that you still loved me. Now, Paul loved the church, but he spoke very directly to them, and he wondered how they were going to respond, not just in regard to their opinion of him, but he dearly wanted them to obey God. And he said, when I was told by Titus that you mourned over your sins that you desired to serve the Lord and that you had a fervent mind toward me, he says, I rejoice the more, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. I'm not sorry I sent it. Now, he said, there was a time that I did repent. He says, though I did repent. He said, as soon as I put the letter in the mailbox, I wanted to reach my hand in there and get it back out. But, of course, he couldn't negotiate finding the letter he said, I, I, I thought maybe I shouldn't have sent it. Maybe I shouldn't have been so direct. Maybe they will perceive my words as being too harsh. You read 1 Corinthians, it is very harsh. He's very direct, very hard hitting. And he said, brethren, he says, I don't repent now. I'm not sorry I wrote it, even though it hurts you. But he said, I did at one time repent, but now I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though it were but for a season. I caused temporary distress that had long-term benefits, like disciplining a child. You know, the parent sometimes has to apply temporary discomfort for the long-term good of that child. Paul says, brethren, I'm glad that even though it were for a season, I'm glad now, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. So you get an idea of what was going on in Paul's heart. In the aftermath of writing 1 Corinthians, and the apostle is now tremendously relieved. Since Titus has come and said they've responded to the letter, they have repented, and they still love you, Paul, and they're concerned for you, it's like Paul's burdens have suddenly been relieved. You know one of the best feelings in life is relief. You ever had pain? Just chronic persistent pain, and suddenly you get some relief. Maybe an analgesic, maybe you've taken some ibuprofen or Tylenol or an aspirin, and suddenly it's just like it lifts off of you, and you can feel it 
depart and a sigh of relief. Second Corinthians is Paul's sigh of relief. It is his profound gratitude to God for working in this situation to bring the church back in line so that not only are they still trying to serve the Lord Jesus, but now they still love Paul. You see, preachers have feelings too. He didn't want them to be upset with him, but he did want to be faithful to the Lord. And so 2 Corinthians, the background of it is his own inward turmoil. Secondly, there are hints in this letter that Paul is physically unwell. In fact, if you look at chapter 12, he speaks of his thorn in the flesh, that is, in his body, physically. And the word thorn is used on purpose because a thorn is something piercing and painful. And whatever was going on in Paul's body was painful and piercing. And he said it's like a thorn. He couldn't get away from it. And he prayed three times that God would take it away. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. I'm not going to take it away. It's serving a purpose. But yet uh, I will give you grace that is enough so that you can cope with it. And by the way, in those final chapters of 2 Corinthians, the words weak and infirmities are used 12 times together. Eight times the word weak appears, four times the word infirm. Now, what is an infirmity? It's a sickness. It's an illness. It's a weakness. Paul feels very weak. So there are hints in this letter that he is physically unwell. What is the background behind the writing of 2 Corinthians? First, his inward turmoil over how the church was going to respond. Secondly, he has physical afflictions. And by the way, when you're physically suffering, when you've got a sickness or an illness, you're having problems in your body, that takes a toll on your spirit, doesn't it? So Paul is just like us. He's worried about the church, and he's worried about his own health. And thirdly, there was a mutiny that even though the church as a whole had responded positively to his letter, there was a small contingency in the church that had launched a mutiny against Paul. He calls them in this Second Corinthian epistle, false apostles and deceitful workers. There was a little group that were working to undermine Paul's apostolic integrity. They were spreading lies about him. They were saying things like, Paul is just like other public leaders. He wants personal favors. He has ulterior motives in his ministry. He's immoral. Paul is living on the sly. He's living a double life. They were saying things such as he's using his position to get rich or to get personal favors. And they're saying things such as he isn't truly appointed to the apostolic office by Jesus Christ, but he assumed it upon himself. They're undermining Paul's authority and his integrity. And by the way, when somebody's telling tales on you that aren't true and you can't really do anything about it, that is a frustrating situation. You know, the Bible warns against bearing false witness against your brother. That's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not bear false witness. And by the way, there's not a one of us alive who won't have rumors spread about us at some point in our lives. I'm sure most of you have already had that at some point. And if you haven't, you will. Somebody will say something about you for one reason or another. Jealousy or just meanness, pure meanness, you know. 
and you say, I've got to set the record straight. Well, if you can, go ahead. But there's nobody who can collect all the feathers that have been strewn to the wind, you know. There's nobody who can set the record straight in every case. There are people who are going to believe something about each of us that is not true, that are not going to be among our admirers, our fan club. You will have people who consider you to be an, a, a rival and an enemy, and there's not a lot you can do about it, my friends. It's just par for the course, part and parcel of living in this world. But yet it troubles us, doesn't it? When I learned for the first time, I was surprised that somebody didn't think highly of me. <laughs> you know, that was just such a shock. I couldn't imagine somebody didn't like me. I liked myself okay, and I couldn't imagine. And then when I heard people saying things that I knew were not true, it just is mind-boggling. I mean, it, it makes you livid, doesn't it? I'm going to set the record straight. Well, Paul was struggling with all of that. And by the way, the last four chapters, 2 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, and 13, are devoted to setting the record straight, to establishing that he is indeed a true apostle, that he doesn't have ulterior motives, that the apostle Paul is not using his position for the sake of patting his own pockets or gaining personal privilege. But he is a man of integrity, and Paul gives us ample evidence in those chapters of his integrity and in ministry because he knew that if they could undermine his leadership since he founded the church, you know, he's the ordaining presbyter. He's the one who established the church, who constituted it. And it's not just a matter of personal pride. He knows if they can undermine his integrity, then they can undermine the whole work that's been done there at Corinth. So Paul has physical ailments, he has inward turmoil and concern for the church, and he's got this group out there that is still trying to sow seeds of discord among the brethren. You see, all of these problems were taking a heavy toll on Paul. In a sense, he was emotionally fragile, his feelings were tender and sensitive, he was smarting under the many pressures and burdens that he had. In fact, if you want to listen to a litany of some of the struggles he'd been through, he gives us a list of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says of the Jews, five times he says, I received 40 stripes, save one. Twice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in the deep. He said, I've been in perils of robbers, perils among false brethren. He says, perils in the sea and perils on the land. He said, twice I've been stoned. And he said, uh, besides all these problems, he said, I have the care of the churches upon me. Now, he wasn't just a pastor. He was an apostle. That means his authority and responsibility was much broader than mine. I've been appointed by the Holy Spirit, overseer of one flock. I'm not in charge of making sure all the churches are healthy and operating according to the biblical pattern, but an apostle was. Paul was very responsible. He had great responsibilities. You can imagine when you have a lot of responsibility, some of you have that at work, don't you? You have a lot on you. You have so many fires, brush fires you have to put out and so many things to think about and uh, people who depend on you for their livelihood, you know, employees and so forth. You've got a lot of responsibility. Can you imagine having the care of all the churches together with all of these pressures and problems and difficulties? Paul's life was no easy life. And that's why we come to our text. He sighs in relief as he writes 2 Corinthians 
The tone of this letter is heartfelt. It's tender. It's personal and vulnerable. His heart is so full of thankfulness to God and love for the Corinthians that it literally overflows in this very intimate expression of deep emotion. In fact, notice the epistle begins with a benediction of joy. Usually a benediction comes where? At the end. It's the invocation that comes first, you know. That's what you start with. But Paul begins with a benediction saying, Blessed be God. Verse 3, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word blessed gives us our English word eulogy, meaning to speak well of. You know, at a funeral, somebody gives the eulogy, they say nice things about the departed. That's the word here, may God be eulogized. It's a divine eulogy. Blessed be God. Now, of course, we can't bless God in terms of conveying a privilege onto him. The less is blessed of the better. That's the biblical principle. A superior is the one who does the blessing. We're the beneficiaries. He's the benefactor. He's the one who gives the blessing. We are the ones who receive it. We're the beneficiaries. But here he says, let's eulogize, let's praise. We could substitute the word praise. May God be praised. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a benediction of joy. You see, my friends, this kind of language, blessed be God, at the very beginning of this letter, I think it's interesting. He doesn't need to be worked up into this spirit of worship. This is the language of worship. It's the language of praise. His pump doesn't need to be primed. That's where I usually am, you know. I come to church and it takes about 30 minutes of good singing and about 50 minutes of good gospel preaching to begin to thaw my old cold heart, you know. And if I would have primed the pump beforehand, you know, maybe I could have hit the ground running. Well, Paul hits the ground running in 2 Corinthians. Just like he does in Ephesians. By the way, this is 2 Corinthians 1-3. There are two other verses that are 1-3s. Ephesians 1-3 and 1 Peter 1-3, which also have this same formula, blessed be God. Ephesians 1-3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Blessed be God for His past grace. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled. That's, may God be praised for future blessedness. Past grace, future blessedness. Now here's our text, 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be God for present help and grace. Blessed be God who comforts us in all our tribulations. He's the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort, and He has sustained us. Notice Paul is happy. For the first time in at least one year, Paul is lighthearted. His burden has been lifted. The clouds have parted, and the sun is now shining again in his soul. Again, as we stated, the theme of this Second Corinthian letter is encouraging the church. Now, have you ever studied the etymology of that word encourage? The prefix in means to put, to invest, to deposit, like you put money in the bank. And the word courage, encourage, means to put in courage. 
To infuse heart, it means to deposit strength, and it suggests the thought of inner strength. Do you need inward strength, inner strength? That's where I need strength. Now, I want my shoulders and biceps to be strong. I try to do some push-ups each night just to keep my muscles from atrophy, you know. And I try to do some curls from time to time. You know, I need physical strength, don't you? Don't you feel the need for to be strong enough to do your daily tasks? But you know where we really need strength is not in our bodies. I really need strength right in here, in my soul. I love Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that they would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inward, in the inner man. That's where I need strength. Psalm 138 verse 3 says, When I cried unto thee, then thou heardest me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. That word strength, the word encourage, the word comfort, they really all mean the same thing. Now, when you hear the word comfort, what is the thought usually in your mind? Do you know what the thought is in my mind? A soft mattress and a cushy pillow and a nice snuggly blanket and a warm cup of hot chocolate or hot coffee and no problems and, you know, the electricity's on and uh, the kids are behaving and there is no reason for distress, just relaxation. That's what I usually think of when I think of comfort. Isn't that what you think of? But you know, the Bible word comfort is not that cushy kind of relaxation. In fact, it's very similar to the word encourage, to invest or deposit courage. What is the suffix of the word comfort? Well, the Latin root fortis means literally bravery. The English word fort, you know what a fort is, don't you? It's a place that is fortified. It has fortifications, that is, it's protected, and it's ready for defense, a fort. My beloved, you and I need to be fortified. We need military courage and strength in our souls. This is the same thought in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means who fortifies me, who gives me courage, who comes in love and pity and compassion to stand at my side. You see what he's describing in this word comfort is the thought of inner strength. And if you have inner strength, my friends, then you can bear whatever outward circumstances you might face in your life. I want to be strong on the inside. I don't want to reach the point that I become afraid and timid and weak in my soul. I might be weak in my body, but if my heart is fortified with the understanding that God is my sustainer, He is my help, He is my comforter. And you see, here's what Paul is saying, brethren, I've had all of these problems, but God has never failed, not one time, to come to my side to strengthen me, to encourage me, to make me brave. He explains this mighty transformation in his life by saying that God came to him and infused his heart with strength and courage time and time again. And that's the thought expressed in our sublime title this morning, the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. The Greek word translated comfort is the word paraclete. 
And it's used in John 14, 16 as a title of the Holy Spirit in his ministry to believers and to the church. Jesus said, I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter who will abide with you forever. Do you know one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is he's our comforter. And the word paraclete means to come to one side, to help and to strengthen. Every time I think of the definition to come to one side, parakaleo, I think of that scene from the Olympic Games, I think when they were held in Los Angeles, California. And a runner, perhaps from Spain, was coming around on the 5,000 meters. And he was so dehydrated and disoriented that he was wandering all over the track, just barely holding himself up. And suddenly a spectator jumped from the grandstands Much to the chagrin of security guards, he ran onto the track and came to the side of the unsteady runner. And he took the man's arm and he put it around his shoulders and he walked with him. He helped him finish the race all the way to the finish line. Come to find out later, it was the boy's own dad, his own father, who loved him enough to risk the ire of the Olympic officials, who loved him enough to want to stand beside him to help him do what he had set out to do, to finish the race. And my friends, sometimes I feel like that unsteady runner to you. My knees are weak, my hands hang down. Sometimes I believe that I am not going to finish. I feel to be inadequate, insufficient. By the way, that's another one of the words in the Second Corinthian letter. It speaks of the sufficiency of God. His grace is sufficient. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, We are not sufficient in ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiencies of God. God is enough for you. God is your comforter. God is the one who comes to my side, says Paul. And he's come to my side in the midst of my inward turmoil. As I've struggled with physical ailments, as I've worried about the effect that these renegade false prophets are having as they spread lies about me, he said, God has come to my side time and time and time again and infused strength and courage into my heart. I love this title. He's the God of all comfort and he's the father of mercies. I love that. It probably is a reference back to this 103rd Psalm, that title in the 13th verse where the psalmist David says, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Oh, the compassion of the heart of God. He is genuinely touched with compassion when he sees his children in need. Listen to the next verse. For he knoweth our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. Sometimes we forget that we are weak and frail, don't we? We start thinking, I'm invincible. I can handle whatever the world throws at me, but you know it doesn't take but a very microscopic germ to bring the strongest individual to his knees. The smallest little problem in your physical body can cripple a person from usefulness, but God knows our frame, and he remembers our destiny just like a father knows the capacities of his children, and he has compassion on them. He doesn't put more on them than they're capable of bearing, but if the burden is too heavy, then he comes to their side to help them. So my friends, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort draws nigh 
to his children like Paul and like you and like me when we are likewise in need. God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. Notice those two references to the word all. The God of all comfort. That means there's never a case in which he will not intervene to help his children. Do you believe that? Do you have some sneaking suspicion in the back of your mind that at some point you might be abandoned and left to fend for yourself? I'm telling you, it's not true. God will never forsake his children. God will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never abandon you to fend for yourself. You'll never be left to make it on your own. He comes to our side in every affliction to strengthen, to sustain, and to comfort. And my friends, there's never a situation too difficult for him. He knows just how to help you. I love the words of the old hymn writer. His love in times past forbids me to think that he will leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to see me right through. I'm telling you, you can depend on him. You can bank on this. This is certain. It's steadfast. You will never be left alone. Never alone. As I look back on the meandering scene of my life, I can tell you there's never been a point when God abandoned me. He's been with me all the way to this present hour. There were times I thought that I was going to be left alone, but I look back now with 20-20 hindsight, and I'll tell you, He's come to my side over and over and over again. He's the God of all comfort. He's the Father of tender mercies who's come in pity and compassion and love to strengthen me in every affliction, to sustain me in every trial, to comfort me in every distress. Paul was profoundly thankful for God's consolation, for God's comfort. I wonder if I speak to anybody this morning who is disconsolate. You say, Brother Mike, I feel to be so weak. I don't know where to turn. I don't know the answers. Well, here's good advice for you from the hymn writer. Come, ye disconsolate. The word means people who don't have comfort. Come, ye disconsolate. Where'er you languish, whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance, here's my advice to you today. Come to the mercy seat. And by the way, it's the mercy seat that is the focus in this hymn, and that's where you'll find comfort. He says, fervently kneel. Come in prayer, come in worship, kneel before God at the mercy seat. Here, bring your wounded hearts. Here, tell your anguish. For earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. I love that last line. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Listen now, joy of the desolate. He's talking about the mercy seat. It's the joy of those who are all alone. Joy of the desolate, light of the straying. Hope for the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the Comforter. It's where the Holy Spirit will meet you with heavenly comfort. Here speaks the Comforter, tenderly saying, Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot cure. Here at the mercy seat, see the bread of life. That's Jesus. See waters flowing forth from the throne of God, pure from above. Come to the feast of love, come ever knowing. Earth has no sorrow, but heaven can remove. Are you disconsolate today, my friends? I want to point you to one 
who is the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies, who promises never to leave you nor forsake you, so that you can say in a real sense, never alone, no, never alone. He's promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Paul says, may God be blessed, may He be praised. I want to brag on Him. Blessed be God, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation so that we can turn around and take what we've learned and comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from the Lord. If you're disconsolate today, come to the mercy seat. It's open. It's ready for you through Jesus Christ. Come and unburden your soul, and you too will be able to say with Paul, He has never, not one time, left me to fend for myself. He is the God of all comfort. I want to spend my life praising His holy name.